When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Namaste, motherfuckers. Welcome to Namaste, motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy, and well-being collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called Roll Up, Roll Up. A nod to the fact that my guest today started out in circus school. So how did circuses start out, I hear you ask? Well, I'm very glad you did because I happen to know that in 1782, an Englishman by the name of Philip Astley set up the Amphitheatre Anglais in Paris. I was going to try a French accent, but I thought, what a twat. So um, it was in Paris, it was the Amphitheatre Anglais, which was the first purpose-built circus. So that was in France, and it was shortly followed by 18 other permanent circuses in cities throughout Europe. And it was in 1826 that the first circus under a canvas big top took place. In 1900, a geek was a circus performer who specialised in biting the heads of live chickens and rats. And I will just say this, I watched a preview of the new Guillermo del Toro film Nightmare Alley just before Christmas and what I'm saying is, if you don't like the idea of that, do not watch that film. Before he became a spy, John le Carré washed elephants for the Swiss National Circus. That's quite hard to say. John le Carré washed elephants for the Swiss National Circus. That's like Peter Piper. Anyway, moving on. Maria Rasputin, that's a bit of an easier name to say, the daughter of that Russian monk, was an animal trainer in a circus, which led to a brief stint of her advertising the US cereal Wheaties as a breakfast of champions. I thought we'd had a conversation. In fact, I'll, wear, I'll switch back to these headphones. They're much more comfortable if they're, if they're clunky. That's my guest today, Stuart Goldsmith. Monty Python's Flying Circus was commissioned by the one and only David Attenborough, who was director of programmes at the BBC at the time. That was 1969, which, by the way, was a fantastic year. It was, well, it was the year I was born. There's a clown in Enid Blyton's 1942 children's books, Circus Days Again, called Google. And in 1889, a lion escaped from a circus in Birmingham and it jumped into a sewer. To calm the public down, the lion tamer just put a second lion in a cage, paraded it down the streets and said he'd captured it. The original lion was still roaming free below ground. It's funny, I did exactly the same thing with one of my kids' first gerbils. It's quite a good metaphor for where I'm at at the moment. Before getting into comedy, Stuart worked as a street performer, coming second in the Street Performance World Championships in 2008. He said at the time, if you can draw in the crowd at 9.45am in Covent Garden, it teaches you to be funny. So it's no surprise that he made a successful transition into the world of comedy. He's been to the Edinburgh Festival no less than 25 times, and in 2012, he decided to launch his now multi-million download podcast, The Comedian's Comedian. 
in which he interviews the funniest people in the world, asking them in depth about how they do it and how they cope with the challenges of a creative life. He's spoken over those years to nearly 400 comics, including Jimmy Carr, James Acaster, Stuart Lee, Sarah Millican, Russell Howard, and in the US, Kathy Griffin, Bill Burr, and Patton Oswalt. He's now bringing his work to the corporate world. He's getting on my patch. Look out, Stuart. And he's sharing these comedic insights to help people in business develop resilience and authenticity. And you could find links to all of Stuart's stuff in the show notes. Stuart and I talked about podcasting, teeth brushing, or is that teeth brushing? Street performing, comedy, hustle, self-belief, ambition, play, age, fame money, success, failure, anxiety, coping, and therapy. But I started by asking him about launching the Comedians Comedian podcast back in 2012. My podcast mentor, the person I think of as my podcast mentor is Helen Zaltzman. And she was going four years before me. So I did a lot of buying her coffees in the early days of like, oh, what about this? What do I do about this? What do I do about that? Um, and I had a chat with her recently now that she has wound up. Answer me this. After 14 years and 400 episodes, they've they've finished that show. And she's currently she's doing The Illusionist now on Radiotopia. So as a, as a podcaster, I suppose I am thought of in comedy terms as old guard because the show's been it will have been going 10 years this year 10 years in march um but i still very much think like god i came late to it it's that classic thing in comedy isn't it oh if only i'd started 10 years earlier oh mm. things would be different you know mm-hmm. um so yes and did you i always think i don't know if you listen to what the fuck that's one of my favorite the mark maron podcast i've He's never heard done... anyone call it anything other than wtf oh well <laughs> here, here we have to uh here we have to say fuck as much as we can uh, <laughs> no acronyms on this show. no acronyms I, do you know it's because of uh 30 years in the corporate world i'm acronym averse <laughs> okay <laughs> so, okay yeah, I really great. Am. <laughs> okay sure oh, yeah. so for me but yes i i can't believe how many episodes he knocks out can you on that i mean he does i think he does two or three a week usually yes i used to listen to it and I haven't for a long time to be fair I don't I don't listen to any other interview podcasts really because I get enough of that at home yeah Uh, but I think the moment I remember when he went to suddenly like three a week I it put me off a bit because I wanted to be a completist not that I was but I sort of felt like it suddenly the idea of being able to listen to all of them became absurd because there were so many. So I slightly was like, oh, it's all it's almost like what's there's probably a phrase for it in business, which you will know, which is about if there's a surfeit of surplus something and it, it turns off the, the listener because you're a bit like, oh, well, if I can't do all of them. I feel that now about telly. I used to feel bad if yes, I wasn't I keeping up with a particular comedy show or something. And now I'm just like, what are you supposed to do? You can't possibly watch all telly. So now I watch very little. It's interesting. The counter to that, I guess, is the people launching the 15 minutes. So I think um, Sean Walsh and Paul McCaffrey's, which I love, What's Upset You Now? Don't know if you've okay. listened to that, but I think oh, they... that con- sounds good. I haven't listened to it, but those people and that title and what I guess is that premise. Mwah. It's gone to... Abs- <laughs> I shouldn't even be plugging it on here because it's gone... It went straight to top of the charts mm. like, instantly. I know mm. there are a lot of different charts, but partly um, I think that short form idea, they decided if we're going to do this... It, 15 minutes is what we want to do like they were saying we wouldn't commit to another big podcast so um, no, they no. might be if they listen to this which they might or might not as they've both been on it but um yeah I think there's something about that 15 minute thing as well and actually even though this runs to an hour I know yours run long because there's so mm. much depth and breadth you go into 
but there's something about that 15 minutes of focus where you're like, I just want yep. to hear this voice for 15 minutes. There's one in the States, which is a toothbrushing podcast and it lasts one minute and Does it's called, it? it's called and spit and it's on Alexa. So the idea is you convince the family to put an Alexa in the bathroom so that every day the child can say, hello, name of unit, uh, play and it's daily and it's, it's play and spit. And so I think it's called that. I'm not sure what it's called, but I think it that sounds like a whole different lost. type it's, of thing. Play and spit. Yeah, I know that's not it's, what you mean. It's like 60 seconds of funny, cartoony sort of pseudo news and sketch stuff for kids, and it always ends with and spit. So it's the length. It's the length of you brushing your teeth. Have to say, Isn't my that clever. I heard that, and I was like, oh, that's just one of the best things I've ever heard. Do you use it with your kids? No, no, we don't have an Alexa. Oh, okay. Well, I I have to say that my dentist would have something to say about that, as she believes she's a three-minuter by way of a rule. And oh, look right. how nice my teeth are, Stu. Come on, it they works. are. And you're so well. You're right in front of a window, and your teeth are absolutely luminous. I am right in front of a window, which actually is not a good place to be doing this, as you know. <laughs> and did um one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the podcast? There are many, but we had a conversation. So you and I had the dubious uh, pleasure of doing the doing a big Christmas show together, um, yes. which was quite rowdy and interesting. And yes. everyone got. Did you get COVID after that? By the way, no. because the other. Did no. you, I'm sure you know the other person on the bill did. Yes, he yes. sent me a message very kindly. He did. Yes, so no, we didn't. Not. But um, we talked about backstage there about the full circle you kind of did in 2020 when you went back to Edinburgh and did. Oh, yeah sort of street performing type of style. So for any listeners who don't know your trajectory, you started as a street performer and then have got into comedy. And I'll let you talk about this as you know your own CV better than I do. But what I was really interested by was the idea that you've done the full gamut from street performing through comedy, from the hones to the really daring to try new, and we'll talk about that, through to now also looking at how that might be adapted for the corporate world. Mm -hmm. And that is a pretty big set of extremes if you think of young yeah. stew to now stew so it was that trajectory that i thought was really interesting in terms of yeah it was certainly a starting point for what we might talk about yes yes i think i've had quite an interesting life as long as i've not stood next to someone who's had a really interesting life it's like that thing i was an actor briefly and that feeling of being an actor and going like oh this is my playing age 16 to 25 and then you see an actual 16 year old you're like oh my god what do i say um so, yes. Well, that is interesting. So, as you say, the, the headlines are, the bullet points of my life are, I've, I've never really had a real job. Um, I, uh, I've certainly never had a salary. I was a street performer, discovered street performing as a teenager. And then whilst being at Wacky Hippie Art College, I would go up to the Edinburgh Festival during the summers and do street shows with my best mate, Noel. And we did them in L Manchester, in London, in Australia, and kind of, you know, did a small version of like, let's take this around the world, like a very small version of that. But we got pretty good. We, had a, we were very lucky to have a good pedigree of the sorts of, like in comedy terms, if you started... And the sorts of acts that saw you early doors, recognised you had potential and had a quiet word in your ear. If those were people like, for example, who are uh, who are the equivalent kind of classy people, someone like, say, if Jeff Innocent had a word with you early on or Mickey Flanagan or someone like that mm -hmm. or Sarah Millican, and they just kind of steered you in the right way. We had the equivalent of that in the street performing world. Mm -hmm. We had really mm -hmm. good people with good, good ideas and a good view of what the magic of that art is mm -hmm. because street performing as you know can be uh 
I mean, it's, there's no there's no bar to entry, even more so than comedy. You don't even need to be punctual, you know. Mm-hmm. So you can do it if you are exquisitely talented and sort of blown away by the romance of this idea of the sort of troubadour lifestyle, or if you are literally you have mental health problems, no one's going to stop you. You know what I mean? You just you go and do it. So you do need licenses. So do you when you see people you know like doing the big pitches at Covent Garden and stuff? That's hard one, right? To get those big pitches. Um, yes and no. And I haven't done Covent Garden for, I would say, 12 years plus. So I don't know what the system is now. But certainly at the time, you did have to audition for a license, but it was much more of a formality than we let on because we didn't want loads of people to oh, be there. really? You do need to be licensed. You do need to be insured. And as I say, this is, I'm talking like when I was there kind of in anger, it was like 15 years ago. Um, but you certainly... It was far more the case that you would feel like you needed to be you need to be able to gather a crowd of three hundred people and hold their attention for forty five minutes. And if you can't do that, then you need a particular type of mentality. If you can't do that yet, I should say, then either you go, I'll work Magic Corner, I'll work the you know uh, what's it called, the North Hall, one of the other smaller pitches, until I can confident I can get a big show off. Mm -hmm. That's one mentality. The other mentality is, nope, stuff it. It, The streets for everyone. It belongs to me as much as it belongs to anyone. I'm going to go out there and be rubbish over and over again until I get good. You don't strike me as someone who would be, um, and that's one of the things I want to talk to you about is kind of ambition, because you seem to be someone who you're very entrepreneurial and you to look loose and have fun. You seem to put a lot of effort into your career and thinking very intelligently about what could the next thing be? You know, you were one of the first people to do lots with Zoom. You're, You're not waiting for the stuff to come to the cave. You're going out of the cave to find the stuff. Do you know what it is? It's uh, the the difference between success or failure in street performing. And I, it's so far on my podcast, there's a running joke. Every time I mention it, you take a drink because I talk about it. I, I don't think I talk about it all the time, but it is mm-hmm. so in my DNA. Mm-hmm. And it is, you're absolutely right. It is how I view the world. So mm-hmm. when I became a stand-up, I'd already undergone the path of, I'd like to be a street performer. I'm I'm not very good, but I'm hopeful. I've got a bit of talent and I'm interested in learning. And blah, 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 A to B to C. Now I is my full-time job. Mm-hmm. I'd already done the template of that. So I mm-hmm. brought that to stand up. Well, mm-hmm. I'm nobody, but if I work hard and ask the right questions and all the rest of it. So that's certainly in the DNA. But also the hustle is in the DNA as well, because mm-hmm. I learned as a teenager very, very early on, the difference between pay the rent and not pay the rent might be as dumb as if I started one minute earlier, I could have caught the break of that other show when that show finished and 300 people walked past. And if I start a minute later, they've already gone and it's just me mm-hmm. in an empty square. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I remember seeing, I remember seeing, uh, it was at some posh uni in London, like one of the, you know, UCL or something like that. Some posh uni. I don't know much about the university. <laughs> I just want to give it to the one I went to you're talking about. I went Shop. to Goldsmiths, so probably not. Uh, no, it wasn't. It was, I don't remember that. But it was, it was, um, we were doing, it was like a kind of a gig, just a, you know, a stand-up gig. And it was a studenty stand-up gig, like a kind of early Christian Knowles type gig, if that mm-hmm. means anything, which it won't mm-hmm. to a, many of your listeners. But, um, but sort of turn up. 20 minutes for 100 quid at a student thing and you get there and the promoter's really worried because no one's there because it turns out that college are currently competing in the semi-final of uh, University Challenge mm-hmm. and everyone's in the student union okay. watching them. So to my mind, you put the, you find out when that show ends. And you put yours on right after. Then, yeah. And then as they all come out of the bar, you stand on a bin outside the bar and say, hey everyone, there's a comedy show here. And and that way you could have got 30 people in. You could have got, you know, whatever. 
the person didn't i suggested doing that and the promoter didn't do that and as a result we did the show to three people Mm -hmm. like the whole show and i was like why would you not why would you not do that (laughs) do you mean do you not want to do People make are really it nervous, work? though. I know when my first, my I did a two-hander in Edinburgh in 2016, and I realised that I was a real natural flyer. And then I thought, well, of course I am, because I've spent my whole life hustling in the business yes. world and getting people to buy what I'm selling effectively. So it felt, yes. I kind of liked... I actually quite liked it. It gave me a kind of energy, but weirdly gave me an energy before the show. And when I got to the point where they were like, you know, the last time I did it two years ago and there was a team of flyers and it was at the assembly rooms and it was all much more sort of sorted for me. I actually, the bit beforehand wasn't as productive for me. There was something about the flyering and the energy and the really sure. getting into my show for an hour. That yes. By the time I was on stage, I'd done my own warm up. And when you just go in cold... It's a yeah. weird thing to say because most people hate flyering, but there's something about well, believing also, in yourself enough to do it. Yes, it's completely mindset and it's a lot of it is self-belief. I enjoy flyering. I don't enjoy it. I don't mind it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you are someone who, um, you probably, when you were flyering, you didn't feel desperate mm-hmm. because you've already had a successful career and you know who you are. Mm-hmm. You're not 22 thinking oh god I've got no money and I'm running out of it do you know what I mean like you're not mm-hmm. in that position of just please come and I've sunk everything I've got into mm-hmm. this thing mm-hmm. please come the desperation comes off you in waves mm-hmm. and that can crush your soul the first no you get the first clear off fuck off whatever you get from a punter you just collapse mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. you know I'm you and me we we've got enough other stuff it's going not our on. first rodeo it's not our first <laughs> I saw one of my favorite ever <laughs> tweets the other day you were asking me what's my favorite joke I've got so many I couldn't possibly point to one but I I, I cried laughing at this and I kept laughing over whenever I thought of it um, I, and I can't credit it I'm afraid it's in the enormous the, the bin of the internet Twitter sphere it, the Twitter sphere and it was it was one of those script formats and it said brackets at my first rodeo me what the fuck is going on <laughs> just that is such a beautiful joke. I actually had a show title that never happened. I did it, I think, at McHuncliffe Festival, but I didn't. I changed the title before Edinburgh. And the show was called Stuart Goldsmith, This Is Actually My Seventh Rodeo, which I really liked. But it turns out I kind of tested it with people and not enough people were familiar with the expression. Oh, really? Uh, this ah. ain't my first rodeo in the UK ah, for it to yeah. really work. It's Sorry, just that American particularly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's and not. Did- it's not our first rodeo. So what you were talking about before... It's we're in different places in our rodeo. Like for comedy, this is your early rodeo. It's early rodeo time. Yeah. Whereas I'm like, yeah. I've done a few comedy rodeos, yeah. and, uh, and now I'm we've got this crossover thing whereby yeah. I'm sort of experimenting in the corporate world and going, oh my god, people in suits aren't necessarily faceless bastards. Yeah, and even if they are, I'll take their money. <laughs> well, yeah, let's focus on the positive. <laughs> um, so, so yes, you're you've been you've been yeah. So that conversation we had with um, with. And uh, we worked with several acts that weekend. So without any accusations of COVID <laughs> or otherwise, Matt Richardson and you and I yes. were backstage at that gig, which I cannot let you go without pointing out. You played a blinder. You compared it so, so well. Oh, I was thank really, you. Like, backstage going, not am I going to survive this, but is this going to have been worth the drive? You did an incredibly good job of turning it into a thing where we not only... Everyone had a good gig. It was great. It was great. But the conversation we were having was precisely that, that Matt and I, and he's a slip of a youth, 
um, we were both like, these kind of things. Is there any value to doing these kind of Christmas gigs besides the monetary value? And is that enough to get you away and everything? And you were a bit more kind of like, yeah, but they, they keep you sharp. You know, they keep you. And I, I there's me like, you know, I, I am your junior by a small margin. And I was sort of going, no, but do they? But do they? Because I've done a lot of them. And I think they just make you better at doing them. And they definitely the make me better that? as an MC, but I'm still, as we know, um, I think I've been going about a third as long as you comedically. So, but it's interesting. One of the, it's actually is an interesting parallel for what we're talking about. And when you think that the fact that this com- this podcast is about, you know, comedy and, and work, straight business, among other things. So the reason that I love MCing is because I can use a lot of the stuff I had in my corporate career and bring it to the stage and know at the very least I can get them to like me and I can control the room, which on those big Christmas gigs, I think is half Mm -hmm. of it. It's not letting the room control you and letting the audience know you've got it. And then they relax and then you're okay. So I think if they like you and you can control it in a gig like that, that's a hell of a long way before you're even funny. Um, And for me, it feels like a very natural step from what I used to do as opposed to if I'd had to do what you did on those nights and one of the two nights you, you, you know, you headlined it and I would not have wanted to headline that gig. I would have mm. found that a horrendous pressure. So I suppose we've come at it from complete opposite ends of the scale. And by the way, I don't see my end point being a street performer in Covent Garden. I think <laughs> there I'm, is I'm, no shame in it. <laughs> not at all. I just can't imagine having you want to, not because you have to. <laughs> no, de- well, I, and I would be absolutely terrified to do it. So it's not my aim. But if you look at what we're doing and you're now bringing your comedic stuff into the corporate world, we are sort of coming from the complete opposite ends of the spectrum. We're crossing over in the middle. Um, and it's interesting to see where the kind of skills are. So people know you've gone from. Um, well just tell me one thing because I I think lots of people listening will love to know this and people who've listened to Comedians Comedian will have heard you talk about it to some degree but so what is it like when you do your first when you do your first sort of street performance of any significance where you're really seriously the stakes are kind of a bit higher that to me does seem people say stand-up's terrifying and I know we all think it's ridiculous when they say it but surely street performance is a bit terrifying because literally anything can happen yeah yeah, I think terrifying is probably the word. I don't think I was ever as scared doing a street show as I was doing stand-up. Like I was definitely the first ever stand-up gig with 10 years of street performing under my belt. I looked down and my hand was shaking. Now that may have been adrenaline, but the fear was a big part of it. Um, how what does it was feel? your first gig, by the way? What, what, how did you get into it? Stand-up? Mm-hmm. Um, it was at the Blue Posts in Kingley Street. It was what was oh, I love that on, club. on reflection. It was probably an early 99 club gig. So here's a, a thing. I uh, Huge Davies, who you may know, very funny. Yeah, I love Huge him. Davies yeah, has brilliant. recently done, um, uh, he's made a sitcom for the Channel 4 YouTube mm-hmm. wing. And the, in the second episode, uh, Helen Bauer and Sunil Patel are playing. It's about buskers. Mm-hmm. And Sunil Patel is playing a magician, a, ma- a magician busker who's terrible. And it looks, I don't know exactly how they've done it, but it looks like they've genuinely made him go out there and then shot him from. Yeah, they did. I talked cameras. to them about yeah. it. Okay. That's what they did. Um, and Sunil's face is absolutely wonderful on which to see suf- suffering. He's like the Michael Serra of the British comedy scene. You could just put him <laughs> in a room and just watch him suffer. It's tremendous. And it really took me back because um, that the sensation of going out there to do a street show when you've got a case with some props in it and you know you can juggle them and you've probably brought far more things than you need thinking, oh, I'll do that for two minutes and I'll do that and then I'll do that and then I'll do that. 
and you walk out there and people walk past you and don't know that you consider yourself a performer mm -hmm. and you have no idea how to define the space. I, all of these things that are absolutely second nature to me now, if mm -hmm. I really try and put myself back to, I've built a little stage or I've, I mean, God, me and Noel, when we were 17, we we took two little mini step ladders, put a line, put a line of... Uh, uh, washing line between them and then put a sort of knee-high curtain to kind of delineate this is the back of the stage and then we sort of trundle them around Edinburgh for a month completely unnecessarily because the stage and the space and the it's all decisions it's all you just like in stand-up you can walk on stage as a stand-up and go here's how it is as an MC for example you can walk on here's how the show works and everyone goes all right and you know it, to us the show is obviously an act then a break then an act then a break then a final act but but so when you say that as an MC, you say, this is what it is, and they'll go, righto. But you could walk on there and go, what it is, is 90 acts come on and do one minute each, then I do four hours. And they go, okay, fine, mm -hmm. because you're, it's authority. But you're doing that implicitly. So as a street performer, you're implicitly laying out your stall without actually physically needing to do it. Both. both. I think yeah. the, the more... The, the more experienced you are and if and of a particular bent then you do that implicitly a lot of the time it's it take your top off climb up a ladder and light a fire torch and go hey everyone there's a show here mm -hmm. I mean, like you like that's kind of mid-level growth of of going how can i get a thing there's like there's two ways to get people's interest shout i'm interesting or be interesting mm -hmm. and people have have different you know there, there is absolutely no one right way to do it mm -hmm. i think by the time i finished street performing and when i would always like i'd still do even when i'd kind of i wasn't really doing it anymore i'd still do street shows at glastonbury because it's just the most fun gig in the world so if you, you didn't if, ever give it up you did still keep doing bits of it i did maybe i did give it up and i remember the first time i emailed back a beautiful festival in Dublin and said you know what thanks for thinking of me I just I've, I went out on a high at this festival in Dublin and even that was coming back out of retirement for last one for one last big job and I did the biggest best street show I'd ever done I made the biggest hat I'd ever made and that's the, the amount of money you gave in the hat and it was I teared up during the bottling speech the bit you asked for money I started I was just like you don't get this guys and it was a solo show at this point I said when I first came here uh, way back when I first, me and my buddy Noel we used to do these things and uh, and now I don't really do it anymore. I've moved on. I do something else and I just came back because this festival's so fun and I'm, I'm kind of, I'm on some poor lemon from the audience's shoulders at this point. Some burly bloke. I'm kind of giving it holding court. And I sort of, and I started saying, you just, this has been so great and I probably won't do this again. And this is, it's just been so wonderful. So come up and give me some money if you want. But I don't need it. It's not my job anymore, but thanks. And I genuinely, they could tell I was I, I was just having this moment of like, it was the end of the film of the street performing bit of my life. Anyway, I made a fortune. Moist, you've got a slight moist glint in your eye now. 100%, 100%. It. Yeah. Um, and, and it worked and I made a fortune. And I thought, I, the tiny street performer bit of my core thought, no, I should keep going and say that every time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, so, so that... That that experience of like this is how meaningful it is to me, and that authority that you that you revel in, that's a long time coming. Growing that authority, there is an awful lot of being kicked. Like, metaphorically, there's a lot of going out there going, "I'm gonna I'm gonna do a show," and then everyone just walks past you and go, "No, really?" And then you do your first trick, and two people watch it, and then they wander off, and you're like, "Well, do I do I start again? Do I do that? What have I finished?" Do I can it? Am I just, mm -hmm. uh, I'm still going, you know, and there's someone sat in a cafe looking at you through the glass and they're looking at you like, oh, he's going to do that again. And you're like, oh God. And you, it's, yeah. So my, my friend Pete, who is a wonderful, wonderful street performer, and he says it can almost, we talked about this at length, it can almost arrest the other things in your development because if you pull it off, 
you feel like a hero. You feel like a legend because it's so hard mm -hmm. and you did it really well and everyone went nuts. You created a crowd yourself. You didn't just turn up and they were all there ready for you. You turned strangers into a crowd. Mm -hmm. And if it goes badly, you still feel like a legend because you tried because it's impossible and it was like trying to climb a, trying to scale a mountain using only your lips. You know, so so it always feels legendary one way or another. Um, sometimes, you know, obviously it can feel really, really horrible as well. But that magic of what is it like? That's a really good question. You you feel like something between a sort of a superhero and someone who's planned and executed a successful heist and someone Shakespearean because it feels timeless somehow. You feel connected. You know, when you or I go on stage, we're not Pryor, we're not Carlin, but there's a little bit of us which is doing the same thing as they did. Mm -hmm. With street performing, it's almost even more so. It goes back hundreds of years to court jesters, mm -hmm. you know, and, and to something really mythic where you are doing the same thing as the first, and not just pro professional performers, like uncles, the first, first guy that ever said, pull my finger to their nephew, mm -hmm. you know, like that tradition of this is the city, and mm -hmm. I am the tree in the city that gives you oxygen. Mm -hmm. It's I mean, you can tell what a romantic, absolute soppy twat I'm about it. Well, but it, 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 it honestly, feel you feel plugged into the infinite. And did it arrest your development? Did you end up in a sort of Peter Pan phase extendedly because yes. that's what you were doing for a living? And in what, what was that like? What, what, yes. what was that period? Yes, but isn't it all, as a person in his early 20s, being able to work three hours a week, do you know what I mean? And it be an adventure with your mate. I mean, you know, we, we would spend whole days trying to attain those three hours in mm -hmm. half hour sections. But I didn't need to do anything Monday to Friday. And I was mm -hmm. in my 20s and I could smoke a load of weed, which I was using to self-medicate for anxiety without realising it at the time. And there was this sort of, as an image my brother came up with, which is sort of a calendar, but on fire. Do <laughs> you know what I mean? I mm -hmm. burnt a lot of time mm -hmm. and I could have started stand up 10 years earlier and I wanted to. But I was sort of too scared of it. I was too scared of the idea of being heckled because I thought that was mm -hmm. way more of a thing than mm -hmm. it is. And I, there was a dignity that I would put up, I, I would stake, and there was a dignity that I felt I wouldn't stake. And I could have got there much faster and much further. And now it's so funny looking around being the oldest person in the dressing room, as Apart you may from have when felt. I'm there. Yeah, well, as you may have felt yourself. I mean, but for me, I feel it like I used to be the kid in the dressing yeah, room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said I used that to, to be, me. Yeah. yeah. Isn't yeah. that nuts? And now I'm, and I don't notice because I've got quite a young mentality, yeah, you I guess. And you still look quite young. So people won't, unless you say it, I think you'll no still one, get away but, with it. Yeah, thank you. No one, <laughs> no one says like, all right, old man. But you know, yeah. I think it. And um, so, so it did hold me back. But then really, what, I, I, I wasted my life enjoying myself? <laughs> you know, that's, well, that's, that's nonsense. that's what I was interested in hearing about from you. Well, first of all, I think when you're smoking weed a lot, it doesn't tend to propel you into big, meaningful, productive life decisions. So that might have held you back a bit from making your standards. Yes, you really don't make through. any plans further you away just, than like, half an hour. And it, what a shame. Yeah, what an absolute shame and waste. Yeah. Well, or is it? Namaste, motherfuckers. Interesting. I'm realising at this stage in my life that the relationship between ambition and play in my life, play has very much taken a backseat to a level um, that I now wish it hadn't. So having achieved in my corporate career to the sort of top level of what you can achieve and sat up there for a long time, I don't necessarily see that as a big win. I'm not, I'm proud of what I've done, but I don't necessarily know in the same way you're going, was that a good use of 10 years? 
I'm going, was it a good use of 20 years having that kind of yeah. board level career? Well, I tell you what, 16 year old Stuart Goldsmith would be absolutely thrilled to hear that because I made that, dis- I assumed that you would feel like that. Mm-hmm. And so I did. And didn't. you backed the right horse. <laughs> Maybe I backed the right horse. Maybe I did. I mean, I've always felt like, oh, I don't know if this is sort of on the same point, but like I've always felt like an outsider. Even within street performing, I was the most normal person there. Or sometimes I felt like so the most normal. So you feel no- like an outsider because you're too normal? I felt like an outsider because I was too normal. If That's I really was honest with myself, I'd be like, oh, I'm kind of faking this. I'm, I'm a nice middle-class boy from Leamington Spa. I'm, I'm aspiring to be some kind of crusty troubadour who lives out of his van. But really, I'm doing the most normal way through this. I haven't got any tattoos. I never walked around in my costume the whole time. I didn't really absorb that. I met I met lots of fringy circus people. I still know lots of very fringy, very fringy circus people. But I'm often the most... My, my, a circus fringy friend of mine has described me and my wife as the most bougie people he knows. Because, like, we're... The, like, his fringe friends are, like, off the scale to me. He's right. my fringe friend and I'm his normal friend. And, like, that is sort of... That Talking echoes. of polarity. Yeah. And is... Um, just to go back to that question, though, because this is yeah. partly about work and decisions people make in terms of combining everything right so did was that a viable way to live then so you could live yeah. performing for three hours a week in your 20s you and still fund yeah, in rent your 20s. and a weed habit yeah in your 20s when you're in a flat share and uh and you so don't you know weren't when... coining it in but you could survive oh we were literally coining it in. <laughs> we were literally, literally paying your renting the coins. brilliant brilliant comedy writer <laughs> steve morrison once saw me at the time i was doing occasional street shows on my transit transitioning into stand-up and we worked on the russell howard and rob deering show on radio 2 called out to lunch and we went for a kebab or something at one lunchtime and I paid for it with one of those little plastic bags of money. And of course, this was pre-free fringe, so it was very remarkable to see that. And he went, here he is, Mr. Moneybags. And really made me laugh. <laughs> I didn't set out as a kid to be a comedian or to be a street performer. And what I think I set out to do is to have adventures. I do, I've, this just popped back into my head. I used to say in my 20s, I would say to people, your only job, I don't know where I got this from or if I invented it, your only job is to ensure that you have interesting stories to tell your grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And that was my that was the my manifesto, really. And I have achieved that. And I've had all this breathing space. And I'm like, did I want to be a comic or did I just want to have adventures? And if I just wanted to have adventures, are there sufficient adventures left within comedy? Like, I'm not... I have to preface this whenever I talk about this. I have to preface this. I am not quitting comedy. Mm-hmm. I'm not quitting my podcast. Mm-hmm. But... I am repositioning and wondering what is next and does it, is it, are there going to be as many adventures and are they still the priority if I simply repeat all the hard work I've done for the last 10 years? Like if I drive to another thousand gigs, will that make me a thousand gigs better? Will it make me, is there a way of doing that? But is it, do I need to be better? Do you mean what are what are the parameters? What are the goals? And so I sit here in my mid-conversion uh, cellar, and when I say conversion, I mean a lick of paint and putting the the desk somewhere slightly different. And this is where I am right now. I'm kind of churning at the moment. I'm mm-hmm. reflecting and churning. Um, and listening to Daniel Rigby's wonderful audio book uh, mm-hmm. Isaac Steele, which mm-hmm. I recommend to everyone. I'm doing that as I paint. And um, 
So you're reconfiguring externally and internally. I'm reconfiguring. Oh, God, you got away with words. That's precisely what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I'm reconfiguring externally and internally. One thing that's worth, when you think about, um, as you know, I work as an executive coach. I used to do lots of it and I resurrected it in lockdown and did 100 one-off, one-hour pro bono coaching sessions with creatives who'd lost their jobs and their oh, identity. Oh, I wanted to be able to do that. I did a bunch of mentoring for for comics. Is that uh, remember you did that lunch? New what was, what yes, was, it, was called yeah. a, it was called a business lunch. That's right. And it was sort yeah. of, you could use it as a fan meet and greet or you could yeah. ask quiz me about the podcast or ask me a specific thing or I'd help you with your act or yes. what have you I'd love to have been able to do it pro bono because that's one of the the things I mean I stopped doing it because I was like I've got to put my money and put my energy into making more money some other way but um I I did on some occasion I was able to go do you know what don't worry about the money um which was pleasing but um so that's one of the advantages of your of the more corporate route yes. is that you're now in a position where you can help and not need to yes i mean i still need out. to earn so but that. i'm also lucky that because the corporate's the backbone of what i do there's always touch wood enough of that i do so many different things still in the telly world as well yeah. that hopefully of my seven different ways to make money there'll always be at least one that's still going but in in that I, I suppose the reason i was mentioning that though wasn't because i'm a saintly hero but was because if you think about how long we're going to have to work, and we often don't think about this until much later, imagine, <laughs> that all of, imagine all of our careers are going to be 50 years long because we don't have lavish pensions. Say 50 yeah. years as a sort of ballpark, that's a realistic length of a career. How do well, you if, not have a lavish pension? Surely so, out of all of us, you can pack it in pretty Well, I'm not going to, you know, I won't discuss my finances, but I'll probably be all I right. just wonder, are you talking generically <laughs> for artists or are you yes. sort of, was well, it you're kind of erasing yourself from that equation? <laughs> I've, I, let's just say that I, hopefully I'll be fine, but, but, <laughs> but by the way, I'm still working though. And I would still, you know, I, I, I'm going to be fine as long as I keep working. If yeah. I, st if I stop working now and sold everything I have, I could find a way to survive. So I'm never going to be homeless, sure, which is sure. a massive privilege and actually a lot more than lots of people can say. Ah, 100%, 100%. So I appreciate um, that. But in terms of, if you just look at the economy and the way things are, so imagine we all have a 50-year-long career. That's the sort of standard. Could even be longer. You know, people now, there are babies being born where they're saying, you know, their estimated lifespan will be 113, 115 years. It's really, it was, you know, my story of Joan Rivers at 81 telling me at 45 that mm. it wasn't too late to start stand-up. And it's so important, I think, for us to realise that. So if you think about a 50-year career span, you're probably about halfway through your working years then or maybe yeah. a bit more because you started as a teenager and when you look at the infinite possibility that that carries I love the idea of what you've talked about looking for adventures really because it's not what you should or shouldn't do but surely it's that we will decide we won't be limited by age or assumption or stereotypes we'll decide what feels right to us and then hopefully have the resourcefulness to make it happen yeah. um, and what you what you do have which is an unusual combination is the combination of being creative and taking risks but also being quite practical and being able to monetize them and look at the longer game so you're doing both yeah. you know it, it, even as a street performer you were still managing to pay rent and and live a life you didn't kind of go off the kind of you didn't need to be living in a squat not there's anything wrong with that but you you, you know you, you managed to make it work so when you think about that next kind of step really um one of the things I was going to ask you is if you feel like so if you feel like an outsider because you're so normal, 
but you are also driven by anxiety. You did a show about anxiety, right? And was it in 2011? Your show. The was best about thing about anxiety? that show was it was called Another Lovely Crisis, and yeah. it's one of my favourite titles for anything. But the show was a diff- classic, difficult second show, and writing about anxiety at the time made me very anxious and reflective about my anxiety. It wasn't something I could look back on. It was something I was suffering there and then. So the the everything about that show was painful. But yeah. And it was the same year that you did Show Me the Funny on ITV, <laughs> which I did wonder, did you ever make the link? Were they connected? Oh, yeah. Oh, God, 100%. Yeah. I mean, not not so much from the show, but that show, Show Me the Funny, I would say, I've always said it set back, set back my anxiety three years. It was really? a terribly anxiety-inducing experience, yes. What was that about? Was it Because was that your biggest sort of TV break? I'm guessing at the time it was the biggest TV yeah, break you'd yeah, had yeah. And, and probably looked amazing on paper, but perhaps a bit different in reality. Um, I think... Uh... I think I felt, if we're asking specifically about the anxiety element of it, I felt that I was I was between a rock and a hard place because the, the producers kept intimating that, oh, while the rules are it has to be completely new material, we won't know if you use some older stuff. And I was like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? I thought the, I thought the thing was we all have to, we've all got 48 hours to write about a new subject and perform it to people who are relevant to that subject somehow. And now you're saying if you like if you do gigs for nurses and what if you've got a tight five about nurses that's okay and they go no 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 but obviously we wouldn't know and so it was it, it had the appearance of one thing from the inside it turned out to be something else I went in deeply cynical I couldn't believe that no one else on the on the in the cast in the the the, the competitors I suppose was as cynical as me so I about about TV who were the other and, competitors oh golly anyone um, anyone who's anyone now? yeah you're loads yeah, of people and it was a really interesting spread from yeah. uh, Ignacio Lopez yeah. who I think had a tough time but is now brilliant mm-hmm. Prince Abdi who had a very tough mm-hmm. time but is now brilliant mm-hmm. um, Rudy Liquid mm-hmm. uh, uh, Cole Parker Tiffany Stevenson who did fantastically from mm-hmm. it uh, Patrick Monaghan who won because he was ultimately um, Patrick is wonderful and a lovely person and organised like we were on the train to Richmond and he organised a sing-along and the cameras weren't rolling he's a great showman he, the and cameras it was an weren't rolling show. he literally just when Patrick Monaghan gets on a train he just organises a sing-along with all yeah. these strangers you know and he won and he was right to win because what they were looking for was someone you know that thing of can you gig in every room they were looking for someone who would thrive in every environment and my my concern about that is that isn't like looking for the best artist. Mm. And I should have known that. I mean, I'm not saying I was the best it's artist. It's looking for the best winner was. of an ITV show is what it's looking for, which yeah, is not it's the like same being, thing. It's like being, it's, if I'd ever, if Drag Race had been around, I'd have known what that show was and yeah. I would have played it accordingly or rather not got anywhere near it because that yeah, isn't yeah, me yeah. at all. So they would continually ask you questions, but they wouldn't ask you interesting questions about the writing process, which is what I was interested in. They would ask you, hey, uh, you must be worried about Dan. Dan Mitchell was in it. Well, you must be worried about Dan. He's on his home turf this week. I was like, I couldn't give a shit about Dan. Mm. What I'm worried about is the fact that you keep interrupting my incredibly difficult <laughs> yeah. and precarious 48-hour writing period before I do new material on telly in, front, in pressure gigs in front of millions of people and then get judged on it by people who wouldn't dream of doing that one of the things in comedy is that you really need to you don't just believe in yourself you have to believe the fuck out of in yourself mm-hmm. and um and i think one of my outsidery anxiety things is like should i be doing this at all and a lot of people who who didn't seem to do much for five years or so but then 15 years you know 10 years after that are really just interesting fascinating honest original comics 
they seemed to be maybe not happy to wait, but they seemed to be prepared to wait and to mature and just see what was out there. Where I always kind of scrabbled. I was a bit less the entrepreneurial thing. I was like, come on, come on, let's make it happen. So when I went for that, I was like, this doesn't, I know this doesn't suit me, but I can't just sit around gigging. <laughs> yeah, I can't, so just, I can't just write then? jokes and gig and get better. I'm like, come on, I want to, I, I feel like it was ambition. And I think because of, like, uh, <laughs> well, how, can I, how can I phrase this? One of my preconceptions as a comic is that I am fundamentally not interesting. I do not have an interesting... I might have... I've made efforts to have an interesting story, street performing, circus school, all this stuff, but I mostly did it in order to be interesting. I don't... I am pretty much the norm. You do have a, a genuine confidence. You know, I know you a bit. We've talked a bit of when you've been trying to get into the corporate world more about how to do that. But there's also this anxiety, this feeling of being an outsider. They seem to run quite counter to each other. And I don't think people hearing you, even on your own podcast, where you do give of yourself, I don't know if people would necessarily still, you talk about anxiety, and I, but, but it's hard to actually But I be, seem like a boring winner, so didn't they it believe it? <laughs> well, it's like when I did a show about vulnerability, and everyone said you talked about it, and it was funny, but we didn't feel you were vulnerable. Whereas I thought that show was me showing my soft white underbelly. So sure. it, it, is it, that, where is that then in terms of what people can see and connect with? Because it's very much part also, you talk about resilience and authenticity in your yeah. corporate offering. Yeah. And anxiety and vulnerability are such a powerful part of that, right? I'm obsessed with coping. I'm obsessed with comedy and I'm obsessed with coping. Those are the things I think about. They occupy 90% of my brain space. Finding things amusing and giggling at stuff and talking to myself and making myself laugh and committing the cardinal sin of comedy. I uh, I had Spotify shuffle on recently and one of my own tracks from an old album from like six years ago came up and I forgot how the bit ended. So I listened to it and you know what? It really made me laugh. That's good. <laughs> I was chortling away to my own, my own forgotten gear. I thought, well, at least I'm making something for the right person. Um, but I'm also obsessed with coping and I... I have a very, very busy brain and I worry an awful lot. And uh, I am not at the moment, like I am at probably at my mentally healthiest for years, probably, oh Christ, since childhood, probably. Is probably that because ever. of the pandemic? Is that because the, 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 it took the pressure off, the sort of it's, FOMO well, pressure off? It's, let's, I mean, in order, it's because of a year's worth of absolutely exceptional therapy from mm -hmm. finally finding the right therapist for mm -hmm. me after a lifelong, an adult Isn't lifelong Isn't that a gift journey. when you find that? Jesus Christ. I mean, I've had some brilliant ones. I've had some really good ones and I, would, mm. I wouldn't hear a word said against them. Um, and it's a shame you can't sort of name them. I'd like to shout out Peter, yeah. who was great for two yes. years. Yeah. And um, the other one's name is very unusual, so I won't say it because it might identify them. But um, the most recent one, it was excellent therapy that really got into the guts of what was troubling me. Mm -hmm. and, and several different things have been troubling me. So, so understanding them and finally kind of almost solving them, really solving them on paper. Mm hmm you you know how therapy works. You fix something in your head and then you have to fix it in your heart. And now I do feel it in my heart. Now it's just trying to break all the habits that are associated with all the previous way of thinking, you know. So I still get anxious for sure. And I still have a phenomenally busy brain. And one of the... One of the, what's this like a joke from Red Dwarf, isn't it? Is the, are we damaged? I don't know, sir. The damaged report machine's been damaged. Uh, you know, that the damaged report machine in my head is haywire. So a lot of the time I'm thinking, oh Christ, oh Christ, oh Christ. And, and it can be solved by every so often remembering just to stop and think, is this actually a problem to solve? Oh no, it's just the damaged report machine's gone haywire again. 
Well, it's you like know, the I, thing about stress. Stresses are things that may never happen and things that you can do nothing about. And if you take out those two parts of the equation, then there's very little that would stress you. Yes, yes, but I love that. that. I hoover up shit like that. I love yeah. it. Something I learned about recently. There's no such thing as laziness. Mm-hmm. If you're not doing something, it's because you don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. So there is, oh, that's there nice. is that surface laziness, the surface idea of laziness whereby you're like, I keep putting a thing off. Well, without... there is procrastination. That is a real yes, thing. Yes, for sure. Yeah. But, but... Why are you procrastinating? Because you don't want to do the thing or because there is some hurdle, there's some block in the way. It isn't because you are bad. There mm-hmm. is some, uh, you may have failed temporarily to investigate the thing that's getting in the way, but that doesn't mean you're lazy. Namaste, motherfuckers. Famous is such a big deal for me. And I've got I've got under the skin of that and realised that it's, I think for a long time I was pretending it wasn't a big deal. I don't that's care. That's interesting because it's absolutely not for me, but I think it's because I worked in tele, I've met so many famous people for so many years yes. as the boring business person, but nonetheless I've been in the orbit yes. of A-listers and the thought of being anywhere near that, I mean, that is the, the sure. horrendous way to live your life. Yes, no, life. for sure, for sure. And I, and I do think I'm overing it, over it now. Mm. That's part of one of the kind of glorious p- part of my life mm. that I'm in now. I'm genuinely like... Oh, I genuinely don't think I care anymore. Yeah. But it's one of those habitual, like, that was a big deal for ages while I pretended it wasn't. And even seeing friends be famous and, and go, God, they don't like, they love it. They hate it. You know, I wonder what it'd be like for me. Really, what it would mean for me is, A, you belong. B, that sticks it to that old teacher yeah, or yeah, that yeah. old group of classmates yeah. or that old version of yourself. You know, it, it, like the 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 bully in me would be sated for how Until long you lost Goldsmith, it, for most, how fucking long you know <laughs> most famous people don't stay famous and lauded for that long so that's the other thing is even the really massive names it's rare that that transcends decades so it's also once you've had that and i've seen that a lot of people who are absolute cool. flavor of the month and incredibly and if you meet people yeah, yes, I, I that's, yeah that's that's i don't think i have any post famous friends yet i will get them i'll get them it is also the realization and this is a big one the difference between not being famous making you unhappy as opposed to the fact that being famous would not have made you happy. And once you let go of the, well, it was the not being famous that was bothering me. Who knows what would have happened if yeah. I had been? It might have been a shit show. As, very Jimmy, as Jimmy Carr says, and I'm sure it's not an original quote, he'd be very, he'd be, he'd be, I'm sure he'd credit it's probably Eckhart Tolle. Not wanting something is as good as having it. Namaste, motherfuckers. I do want to ask you what you would pick, Stu, as your namaste mother fucking life-changing moment. It's it's only hard. I, there's definitely one I go to immediately. There's definitely like, oh, that one. And I'll tell you that one. The biggest moment is when me and Noel did our first street show when we were 16 years old. And, and I've told this as part of a show. I did a show in Edinburgh in 2010 called The Reasonable Man, which mm-hmm. was my debut. Mm-hmm. Um, and... The show centred around this very meaningful moment to me, which was simply getting on the bus after doing this street show on the X-16 from Stratford, where we'd been working, back to uh, Warwick, where Noel lived, and uh, and counting our bowler hat, counting the money in the bowler hat on the top deck of the bus, and realising we'd made 30 quid. And this was, whatever it was, 90-something. And we were both 16. And we just, we looked at it, and we looked at each other, and we both thought this changes everything. You did say earlier on you didn't want to give a favourite joke that it was impossible for you. And you gave um, something you'd seen on Twitter that you liked oh, about uh, the road. My, it is my first rodeo. If I'm going to make you do this, which I am because it's one of the three questions everyone asks, oh, yes. what okay. is your favourite joke? OK, so the one I always think of first is Simon Munnery's joke. Um, he was he is 
was always my biggest inspiration. The way his mind worked. He was my brother's flatmate for a while in the, oh, lovely. Uh, in the 90s, early 90s. Oh, excellent. He was my wife's English teacher's best mate. There you go. <laughs> We've got a Simon roads, Munnery connection. All roads lead to Munnery. Um, his joke, I was walking down the road the other day, looking at the sky, the trees, the flowers, and thinking to myself, the world is so beautiful. Why would anyone ever choose to take drugs? And then I remembered I was on drugs. <laughs> That, I just think that is, I, I, you can use that to explain how comedy works. And what would you give, if you could give one bit of life advice to anyone listening, what would it be? Oh, I mean, there's so many. I, like I said, I hoover this stuff up. So where the, you know, um, probably the piece of advice I give to comics, and I'll, I'll tell you that and then I'll see if I can weld it into being more more valid. The piece of advice I would give to all comics is... You've probably got an idea in your head of what a stand-up comedian is. And you're probably doing an impression of that. Well, that isn't the job. The job is work out what you are. And it's incredibly hard to work out what you are because there's all this static and all this noise and all these images and associations and everything of what you think a comedian is. But the job is you are ultimately free. You are free in an ultimate way. As long as they laugh... Anything is allowed, whether it's sticking a firework up your ass and singing That's Entertainment, a la Chris Lynham, whether it's Spencer Jones with big eye things in his eyes, or whether it's, you know, whether it's like Sarah Millican delivering some sort of withering put down that's kind of coated in sugar, or whether it's a tweet or whatever the thing is, whatever, like it is everything. It can be everything, comedy. And so there is no need to confine yourself to doing an impression of what it is you think you're supposed to do. So if you could widen that out to life, don't do an impression of yourself. Do yourself. Namaste, that was Stuart Goldsmith. Every episode, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I'm going to do. And this week, I'd love to say I'm going to juggle or learn to eat fire, but there's absolutely no way that's going to happen. I actually had a boyfriend at uni who could juggle whilst riding a unicycle, and then he also learned to eat fire. That did not end well. I mean, he's a great circus skills person, but our relationship didn't end well. So anyway, moving on, um, instead of circus skills, I am going to read the book that Stu mentioned, which is Isaac Steele and the Forever Man by Daniel Rigby. Daniel Rigby, the BAFTA winning star of Flowers, Black Mirror, and those BT ads, among other things. So this is Daniel Rigby's first sci-fi novel, and I quote, not since The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy have readers been offered such a joyful, anarchic, and insightful universe. I'll be honest, I've never got into sci-fi novels. Um, in fact, I think The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is probably the only one that um, I ever enjoyed. So, well, let's try it. New year, new me. And by the way, if you are a Hitchhiker's fan, um, we did do a lovely one of these shows with the brilliant John Lloyd uh, last year. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. So that is it for this episode. Thank you so much, as always, for supporting the podcast. We love you for loving us. We will be back in your feed next Monday, as always, when I will be talking to journalist, speaker and best-selling author Helen Russell. We don't want the people we love to feel pain, but actually by doing this, we do them a disservice. 
Namaste, Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.